Thank you very much for Saturdays. Om Aginat Mirandasyagna Ajana Salakaya Chaksurum Militangina Tasmai Sri Guruve Namaha Bajasri Krishna Chaitanya Prabhu Nityananda Sri Adwaita Gnadhar Sri Vasadi Gaur Bhakta Vrinda He Krishna Kauruna Sindhu Dinapandu Jagatpate Gopisha Gopika Kanta Radha Kanta Namostate Om Namo Bhagavate Vasudevaya Haribo Nice chant. Yeah? Different kind of joyfulness. One of uh, our great spiritual preceptors in our lineage from about 500 years ago, his name was Rupa Goswami. And he wrote a famous verse that says, I do not know how much sweet nectar the two syllables, Krishna, have produced. When we, when the, this holy name of Krishna is chanted, it appears to dance within the mouth. We then desire many, many mouths. And when the name enters the holes of the ears, we desire millions of ears. And when the holy name dances in the courtyard of the heart, it conquers the activities of the mind, and therefore all of the senses become inert. So, you know, there's two kind of approaches to what's called samadhi, the highest immersion in transcendence. One is a mechanical process where you forcibly take control of the mind and force it to submit and bring it into a very central focus. And when you can do that for a long period of time, you now immerse the vehicle of the mind in that which is transcendental, that which is spiritual, and that immersion is called meditation. When one becomes so deeply absorbed in that experience without actually experiencing either the transcendental nature of the soul itself or the connection with the supreme soul, one becomes lost in this ecstatic immersion. And this is called samadhi. To do it by the mechanical process takes decades of practice and determination and being isolated in a state where you're not disturbed by other things. 
the process that was promoted by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who was the spiritual teacher of Rupa Goswami, was that in this age the most suitable way, because people are in bad shape, their minds are running wild, the most suitable way to achieve this condition is by the focused singing, particularly in congregations. There is like a, a special potency there where people hear and sing and chant these transcendental sounds. And, you know, what inspired me to talk about this is just the experience that you had when Oransada was leading us, um, you know, in this kirtan, where even if it's for five minutes, you can enter a state where all your worries, all your cares have gone. You're not even remembering where the car's parked. You're not thinking about how you look, or if you are, you haven't got to this condition yet, and you're just absorbed in that sound. And there's something going on there. You know, it describes, it's like the, the holy name has come and danced within the courtyard of your heart. And as a result, the mind actually has surrendered. It's not dragging you everywhere. You're just hearing the sound and repeating the sound. And you don't know why, and everybody's smiling. <laughs> this is only the beginning these are the early stages of experiencing the actual spiritual potency. See, these sounds are not ordinary sounds. Our dear friend Ivish the other night was talking about the onion song. I got to look that one up. That was, <laughs> I, I didn't know about that. I usually use mango, you know, and it's kind of like if you go mango, 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 you know, it just doesn't do anything for you. You don't get to taste anything. You don't experience anything. After a while, you just go nuts, mango, mango. <laughs> the, these spiritual sounds, actual spiritual mantras are not just sound syllables. These syllables are like a container. And what is within that container is an enormous spiritual potency. And that is why how you receive mantra is of critical importance. Somebody can't just like read it in a book and then share it with you and you become transcendentally realized from using it. Because what has only been passed on in that regard is the container, the syllables, but not the potency. So I also use example just like when the fan is on. And if you had sun streaming in the door on the fan and it was casting a shadow, the shadow has exactly the same shape as the fan. And you can even see it turning and perhaps even see there's a, like a blade moving, you know, very fast. But if I put my hand in front of the shadow, I don't feel any air or wind blowing. 
But when I put it on the actual real fan, then there is a potency. So in a similar way, actual transcendental sound possesses an incredible spiritual potency. When only the shadow is past the outside form, but you don't have the potency attached to it, then one does not derive the benefit that one does from receiving true spiritual sound. And you only have to receive it once. And having heard it, to begin to utilize it in your life. And you will go, if you are sincerely trying to engage in this process, it will take you to deeper and deeper states of spiritual experience where one will be, a, a whole spiritual world will become available to you. And and forms of, of spiritual experience that are utterly fulfilling and ecstatically satisfying. But one cannot artificially get to that place. This spiritual sound or mantra and and just to well I'll look it up while I'm talking so I don't misquote um, this spiritual sound or mantra even if we are in a highly contam I'll use the word contaminated state in terms of the state of our consciousness is still so powerful that even a person in, in the most lowest condition, by utilizing it, one becomes in, increasingly purified. And when, as one becomes increasingly purified, then The, our capacity to chant the sound with increasing purity comes about and brings with it increasingly wonderful transcendental experience. There's a famous mantra in the Padma Purana which is a very ancient Vedic text that states Sampradhaya Vinehe Mantrasti Nishphala Mataha. And it says, unless one receives the mantra from an authentic spiritual source, and it specifically uses the word Sampradaya, which means these spiritual lineages of self-realized masters. Unless one receives it in that way, the mantra that one chants will not bring about the desired result. And of course, the desired result becomes manifest in a really simple way. Is my attraction for this world and my seeking fulfillment within this world decreasing 
is my attraction for spiritual practice, for these transcendental sounds increasing, this is the, this is the symptom to know how, how we are doing. Okay, so that was um, inspired by our lovely chant. <clears throat> Anybody have question? Before I, I do questions, I would very much like to thank all of you for showing up. You, um, demonstrate tremendous kindness and mercy towards me by doing this. I have a, a, an unlimited debt to my spiritual teachers, my gurus, who have absolutely radically transformed my life and gifted me with priceless gems of spiritual wisdom and experience and because my debt to them is so great the only thing that I can do to try and repay this debt which is not even possible but to at least try is to try and share even if it's imperfectly done to try and share what has been given to me so you are excessively kind to me by giving me these opportunities, and I thank you all very, very much for that. Okay, any questions? Okay, that's all right. Question. How did I find this pathway? Um, I, I, I grew up in Tiaroha, and I, I was probably a little bit odd. I, I just had this really deep desire to know what the, what the hell is this life for? I was very troubled as a child. The idea of just finishing school and getting a job and then getting married and having kids and growing old and then dying seemed utterly purposeless. <laughs> it just seemed like this can't be, you know, these are things that you can do and they're important and everything, but that can't be the purpose. Why, why am I here? What's this all about? I was raised as a, a Catholic <clears throat> and became excessively disenchanted quite early on with some of the answers that I got from things. And I felt I, I didn't lose um, an interest in a higher spiritual reality or truth. I just figured the people that were talking to me actually didn't really know what they were talking about. They were giving answers, but it wasn't really, it wasn't real. So I started, you know, looking around and I was trying some of the different things that were meant to be, you know, elevated at that time. I got into all kinds of weird stuff. You can't believe it. But then I eventually discovered yoga, which was pretty weird for a 14 year old kid in Tiaroha 
with a little dinky library across the road and hardly any access to anything. But when I, I found it, I thought, oh my God, this is it. And so I, I took to the practice of, of uh, Ashtanga Yoga and um, over a period of a few years had some extraordinary experiences. But I did come to realize that all these things I was experimenting with on my own, it was extremely difficult and I actually needed a teacher somebody who was experienced and could guide me. And so I set about looking and I got, I hitchhiked all over the North Island, going to different places. You hear this heavy person here and this cool person there. And I'd go and submissively, you know, and make inquiries from them. What's going on? What have they got to share and everything? And usually within a couple of hours or a couple of weeks or a month, I became desperately disenchanted they were just making stuff up or talking about stuff they read in a book you know that wasn't coming from a place of real spiritual experience or anything and I erroneously came to conclude that actually no one knows everybody's just guessing which was of course wrong but I just had some really bad experiences you know the majority of people that are eager to teach actually don't really have very much to share, not from a purely transcendental perspective. So I sort of like, you know, drifted into the hippie world and became absorbed in the use of, of things to what I thought were spiritual, you know, because I, you, you fast for some time and, and you, you know, spend some time and focus of the mind and, and in this state you take a little support from um, chemical agents and you can have some extraordinary experiences. The reality is though, you cannot achieve anything fully spiritual with any material thing. It is the spiritual that delivers the spiritual. So anyway, I, I had all this stuff and because I was living in a hippie house in, in um, Ponsonby and um, we were getting harassed by the cops on a regular basis. So we decided to go to Australia and I went to Australia and um, the first two guys that were, um, they were disciples of Bhaktivedanta Swami who had come to Australia from America to um, share that that process, you know, and, and I I had gone up to King's Cross to try and score some acid, and I I heard this sound, you know, ching 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 ching, and it's like, what the hell is that, you know? And I came over, and there was this group and these two people there, and one of them was the nicest person I'd ever met at that time. The other guy was an absolute dick, so it was kind of like it was like whoa. <laughs> <laughs> but a contrast here. But I heard this chanting and it just absolutely melted my heart. I just stood there in tears and I, I was just absolutely transfixed. I had no idea what it was. But I, I, I recognized that this 
is deeply significant for some reason. And this is what I had been looking for, even though I didn't know what it was. So I, I kind of moved in with them for a little bit. Um, Bhaktivedanta Swami came out to Australia on a visit and he was excessively kind to me. Um, he, he showed me tremendous kindness and I, I was overwhelmed by that and he left and went back to India after about 10 days. And it was like, okay, you know, this, this person is, this is a spiritual teacher. This is not, you know, a wannabe. This is a genuine spiritual personality. And I felt like, you know, I got I to gotta follow him and I, I need to find out what's going on. And so I ended up getting a one-way ticket to Calcutta and with just $14 went to Calcutta. And I was, um, I was 19 years old. And so I then spent a few years in India traveling and staying in different holy places and ashrams. And... Um, that was the beginning of, you know, my reconnection in this lifetime with this wonderful spiritual process. Okay, that's how it started. <laughs> yeah, it's actually, a, it's been a, an, an absolutely incredible journey. You know, there were times when I would think it can't get any better and it does <laughs> and it doesn't it doesn't stop or slow down it's the most won wonderful thing you. you're very welcome uh oh guys trying to give me bladder problems <laughs> if i drink all that liquid <laughs> i might be able to finish this talk <laughs> Sorry, I'm a, actually a really crude person. <laughs> I don't have very much going for me. Except that I've, you know, by enormous fortune, happened upon something life-changing and incredible. Okay, what else? Yeah. So, yeah. So, my apologies for maybe not being even clear enough. When when you're involved in ecstatic or extremely joyful chanting, and you're actually just there chanting, you're not. Your mind is not pulling you everywhere. You know, if you chant for 20, 30 minutes, maybe for a chunk of that it is. But once you become really absorbed in just hearing and chanting and ex taking the sound into your heart and resting your heart in the sound, you're not thinking about anything, right or not? 
huh? I mean, even for two minutes, three minutes, five minutes, there are periods where you're not thinking about anything. And this is actually the beginning of the experience of samadhi. That the more one becomes deeply involved or, or engaged in this, immersed in this, then the mind becomes quiet, meaning it's not engaged in material thought or things related to material things. The mind actually becomes like spiritualized and it's just a, it becomes a vessel for this holy name to resonate around in and we become deeply absorbed in it. And so when a person becomes even more spiritually advanced and becomes more absorbed in this ocean of spiritual sound, then the mind becomes absolutely, it has no influence in that condition it's n not a trouble. It's not a problem. It's like it's not even there. So that's what it means. And because of that, the senses, the senses are used here like in, in Vedic verses. They often use an example that the body is like a chariot. And the mind is like the reins on the horses and the five horses are the five senses and then the person holding the reins this is the intelligence or buddhi so for most of us we're just like your senses are constantly scanning for stimulation Oh, that looks nice. Oh, what's that smell? Oh, <laughs> it's just constantly the senses are just pulling us through influencing the mind in so many directions. And it's likened to when one has no control over the senses. It's kind of like, you know, people that do the Vipassana experience where, you know, they're just stuck in one place and nobody's allowed to talk. And, you you know, after a while, you're just going like crazy. It's like, ah. Oh. <laughs> and when you get past it, then it's kind of like you experience this, this quietness and this peacefulness. I think there's a biblical verse that says something, be still and know the Lord. You know, and it, it points to this, practice that's universal in nature that when people become deeply you know quiet and stilled and they become more absorbed in that which is transcendental even my own spiritual nature the experiences are wonderful and so like it's not like while you're chanting you're not thinking about Doug's ice cream van <laughs> And going out for a, a right a bit of tongue stimulation or ear stimulation or you know nose stimulation or genital stimulation or whatever, yeah. And so it said the senses become inert. It's not that you, you know, just stand there like a a zombie. Okay. Like real simple, this stuff is, is not complicated.
Yes. Okay, this is actually a quite a, um, I, well, I'll answer it, but I'm just letting people know you don't have to worry about whether you get it or not. It's not of tremendous importance at this moment. So I, I, he's asking about the, the modes of material nature that I mentioned. This incredibly powerful force that absolutely permeates all the material energy and manifests in three operational modes of ignorance, passion, and, and goodness. And everybody is deeply influenced. In fact, this, these forces that you're not even aware of are actually determining the direction of your thoughts and the direction of your desires and then the activities that, that come from it. And I had mentioned that in most of the yoga processes, people were advised to try and become more situated in the mode of goodness because it's a better platform to approach spiritual practice from. Um, but it's important to understand that that is not spiritual in and of itself. It's like a very refined and elevated material condition where there's less distracting you. So what he's talking about, though, is it also has its own problems, meaning that a person can become so um, fixated and conditioned by the experience of the mode of goodness that they just can't go and... and um, I mean, you've got people that just live way out in the, in the wilderness or they live way out in, you know, in, a, in the countryside somewhere and they're just not disturbed by anything. And if they're engaged in a spiritual practice, they become so immersed in that. And if you ask them to go into a town or city for a spiritual purpose, they'll refuse to do it because it's too disturbing for them. And in our lineage, our, one of the great hallmark of our spiritual teachers is the absolute dedication of their life to try and help the vast ocean of suffering living beings and to try and help in their upliftment. And so if a person is serving a spiritual master whose heart is totally given in this form of service 
to humanity and not just humanity but all living beings who are constantly thinking, how can I make a difference? How can I help? Then you may be asked to go and give a meditation class somewhere. But if you're so addicted to living in this world of peacefulness and quiet and everything is wonderful for me in my spiritual practice, and the idea of getting in a car already freaks me out, and then driving to a city and being around all these people, and it's just like, oh, it's ruining my peacefulness. <laughs> a person in that state is actually not in an elevated spiritual condition. It's a very subtle form of selfishness, of self-centeredness. Whereas a person that is more transcendentally situated would gladly, gladly embrace any instruction from such a saintly person who said, please help me in this work. And I will forego my own comfort, my own privacy, my own time, my own peacefulness to try and be of some help to others. Even if I am not deeply motivated myself to do it, I trust that this person, because of, I've seen what they're like, is asking me to do something that is of great importance and will therefore be highly beneficial to me. And so I will surrender my own desire for peacefulness and the happiness that comes from that kind of living to go into spaces that may be horrible in order to try and, and help. You know, I, I've, I've spent most of my life in, in Asia. And what you find is that people in very depressed communities, and we're talking about slum areas, you know, where people live. It's like animal existence. It's so pitiful. But when you go into those areas and you try and give people some skills in terms of, you know, helping improve their life and you teach them this process of chanting, my God, the response is amazing. You know, you can go to these, they, in the Philippines they call them barangay, which means it's like a village, you know, and then you can talk to people and you can have a little presentation and maybe you're helping people, you know, develop, things related to nutrition, how to, even with the little that you have, how to improve the quality of your life and your kids, how to manage things like anger and emotional things, you know, so that you have a better influence on your family. And, and people really like being somebody coming to help. And, and the kirtans that you end up having after visiting a couple of weeks are just like everybody's there just like rocking out and everybody's so happy. But if you ask somebody to voluntarily go and hang out in one of the slum areas, it's kind of like, whoa, no way. <laughs> okay.
Do you want to repeat that again? <laughs> It, it, are, you, are you sure about your choice of words, Tim? I can talk to Tim directly because I know him. It increases the volume. Well, it, it may become more evident, but it's not increasing the volume of it. Well, you, yeah. Okay. Um, firstly, you know, the actual experience of, and it's a gradual experience of self-realization, one will be confronted with lots of things. One of them is, is shame for how I have sometimes acted towards others. You know, in, in life, we often become more focused on that which we have no control over and seek to control it rather than focusing on that which we have control over. So if somebody's behaving to me really badly, then I want to become really focused on changing them. <laughs> but actually what I have control over is how I will take how they're dealing with me and how I will respond. That's all within my power. And a person that has more spiritual vision, you know, they can see, it's kind of like you walk past somebody's house and the dog starts barking at you. You can get all angry and start kicking the gate and swearing at the dog and it's kind of like, why would you do that? <laughs> that doesn't help you or the dog or the situation. Don't you realize it's just a dog? It's just compelled by all of these forces, the modes of material nature, to behave in a certain way that's appropriate for a dog. It, it doesn't have anything personal against you. You know, mellow out. It just sees you as a potential threat. It doesn't know. And if you get down on your hands and knees and bark back at the dog, you're just making a fool of yourself. I'm using this as an analogy. This is often how we relate to each other. And it's kind of like, well, why are you so fixated on trying to change everybody else? Why don't you just consider how you should see this? You know, maybe somebody's lost the plot. Maybe somebody is overwhelmed by the modes of nature that become victimized by their own mind and anger. And instead of feeling pity for them, we become angry at them. This is a choice. This is a choice. And so a growth in spirituality, actually, you know, it's just like, whoa, when I actually get to see all the crap that's going on in my own mind and heart, you know, it's like another example. You get five people together that know each other well. You give them a piece of paper. You go, okay, everybody, write down. And Mary, you don't have to worry. Just sit there. Everybody, tell me all of the bad things about Mary. It's like, yeah, 
<laughs> you know, bam, we got a big list. And you go around the room and everybody does it and everybody can make these long lists. And then you're all given a piece of paper and you go, okay, can you kindly list down all of your faults and bad qualities? Um, yeah, maybe this one. Yeah, kind of like this. And shit, I only got three items here. I better get writing. And soon you're making stuff up. <laughs> and it's like, we just, are, we are blind. We are blind to how we're behaving and what our, you know, material characteristics and the material mind, the quality, what they're like. We're, we're often really blind to it. We're not introspective. With spiritual practice comes growth and one will become actually increasingly aware of stuff they weren't even aware of before. Now, you've got two options in how you deal with that. One is, in a is to become more humble. And it's like, oh, my God, I didn't realize that it was this bad. And I'm really sorry for that. And I need to do something about it. You can go that direction, which is positive and healthy, or you can go into the self-centered direction. Oh, I, there's no hope for me. I'm just so out of it. <laughs> which is an influence of the mode of ignorance. So you can go in, in, in you know, these two di directions or something in between. But one of the experiences of genuine spiritual growth is increasingly increasing humility because one becomes you know it for whatever reason and for whatever motivation i have often acted in a way that's actually shameful and the more one becomes aware of their eternal spiritual nature it's just like oh my god what have i done that i'm in this situation and when i say that i mean fallen from this stature of being this perfect, extraordinarily wonderful, completely lovable, amazing spiritual entity to now taking on these material identities and bodies and living in this crappy existence and being completely overwhelmed. And yet you're going to have heavy reactions to it. To feel unworthy is good, but if one only focuses on that, that's ignorant. We should know that I have an eternal friend. We are all brothers. and There is a, an ancient text called the Brahma Samhita, and it describes that all that the living being is bound by an eternal bond of kinship to the supreme soul you if you have a kid and the kid turns out to be a massive a-hole a real dick and it's just causing chaos for everybody. 
you know, you get upset about it, you don't like it, but at the end of the day, they're your kid. And they may head off and just mess up their life massively and cause all kinds of trouble and chaos, as we heard last night. <laughs> right? But for the parents, this is still my child. And if my child comes back and says, just even one time, I'm, I'm really sorry, it's kind of like everything is washed away. Because of that bond of kinship that exists between a parent and child, on a spiritual platform, we have the most intimate kinship that we actually have is with the Supreme Soul. There is nothing more intimate and binding and wonderful than that. And while we may have messed up really bad and gone off and wickedly, you know, monumentally bad directions, at the end of the day, that spiritual reality is there. I don't have to fight for worthiness, for acceptability. It is part of an eternal spiritual connection. Okay, and so while we should accept, yeah, I've, I'm terribly unworthy, it doesn't invalidate this other transcendental truth. And even though I am so unworthy, I am so happy that I am loved. I am so happy that this is my identity, this is the nature of that relationship, that connection. Again? Is the relationship with the Supreme Soul the only spiritual relationship? Or eternal relationship? No. You, you can, you can, you know, I'm, was it here the other day? Yes, it was. I was talking about the Van Ashram system and people who marry should do so with the understanding that this is an eternal spiritual being housed in this particular body that I see as my husband or my wife. And similarly, I am an eternal spiritual being and we are on the same path and we are on the same direction. We can cultivate relationships within this world that also become eternal, but they are never completely focused just on each other, which is what a lot of people think, you know, particularly within the Abrahamic traditions, the Islam, Christianity, Judaism, where people think that by virtue of the bodily relationships that we have, we'll die and later go to heaven and we'll all be back together again. You know, which actually, if you think it through, it's sort of like, well, 
What about great-grandma and great-grandpa? Are they going to be there as like really old people in wheelchairs? You know, they, they, they want to be, they want to be young people and their relationships and, you know, so how do we do it? What if, what if grandma shows up and she's like seven years old and, and it's kind of like, you know, how, how am I going to recognize her? If you actually explore it, you're going to flip out because. <laughs> <laughs> the idea of applying material thought, you know, in a little bit more deeper way, it's sort of like, mm. so the understanding is, yes, you can build relationships in this world that take on an eternal nature, but they are always completely surrendered, uh, centered around our relationship with the Supreme Soul. That's a, this is a deep subject, so just touching it there. It's time. Yes, sir. So for those who weren't able to hear, uh, the question is about fear and how it's becoming increasingly pervasive in people's lives and everybody talks about it and stuff and from a spiritual perspective how to deal with it. The Vedic teachings say that ultimately all fear originates from the fear of death. The fear of death for one who is only absorbed in the idea that the body is me, death is an absolute freak out. I mean, when you gaze down at the body of someone that you knew and there is nothing going on, there's no one home, you know, and it's like people become traumatic. I've seen people at funerals just screaming and crying and being pulled away from the coffins and stuff. And it's just like, oh, my God, we suffer so much. It, it is the fear of things really coming to an end. And why does that disturb us? From a spiritual angle, because we are actually eternal spiritual beings, when we falsely identify with the body and we see something like death, it's so incredibly disturbing because it's contrary to a deeper nature of the soul itself, that we are eternal. And we don't understand it, but we have that feeling and it really, really drives us. It, 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 things have become more pronounced probably in the last eight years or so or ten years, largely due to both social media and, and 
regular media. I mean, there's an old saying that they had in newspapers. Does anybody know what a newspaper is? You know? <laughs> They've gone by the way by, you know, it's just like. They used to say, if it bleeds, it leads. That was what they, that was known in that industry. In other words, you've got a headline tragedy. You've got to headline it because it grabs attention, it makes people buy the paper and then read all the other stuff. If the headline is, uh, the economy's doing wonderful, everybody's feeling kind of peaceful and sort of okay, it's kind of like, what? what? <laughs> I'm not going to spend money on that. But if I see some massive tragedy, some shooting or some, you know, murder thing or some horrific thing or plane was shot down by a missile over Ukraine, you know, that one that happened and everybody died and it was kind of like, then everybody wants to get it and, and read it. There is that tendency to be attracted to um, unpleasant things. This is a defect of the material condition. And what advancement in, in, in IT has created is, is this tendency to feed people rapidly with all the stuff that, that freaks them out. And so just by hanging out on your device, you're going to be made increasingly aware of all the terrible things that are going on or all the terrible things that disturb you. So I'll just read a quote. Um, oh, Sorry, I got so much stuff in here. <laughs> My apologies. It's worth the wait, I promise. So have you, I don't know if you know the name, um, Tristan Harris. Has anybody seen the, the documentary, The Social Dilemma? You absolutely should watch it. Absolutely. It's all of the insiders in big tech talking about how outrageously bad it is. And everything is designed to absolutely manipulate everyone. You think when you hit the friend button that it's all kind of quite innocent. You have no idea this vast array of computers. I mean, it's just like supercomputers are pointed at you from the other side of the screen, watching everything, monitoring everything, feeding you everything. So this guy used to be... Um, a design ethicist for Google, and he resigned because he saw how bad it was inside. 
And in giving giving uh, a testimony to U.S. Congress, he described that big tech's business model, this is their business model, is to create a society that is addicted, outraged, polarized, performative. Performative is the selfie thing. You know, I'm so happy. Performing for others to f- to get, you know, adulation and acceptance. Performative and disinformed. They're creating a society that is addicted, outraged, polarized, performative, and disinformed. And he said, that's just the fundamentals of how it works. So, like, for instance, Instagram, you know, was was finally had to admit, or Facebook, who, who bought Instagram, that they had this crappy model where young girls who were really troubled by body image, you know, you, you're going, I tell you what, the, the most horrible transition in life is from childhood to becoming an adult. <laughs> that time is chaos. <laughs> and everybody's suffering so many insecurities and wanting to be liked and accepted and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And after a while, people get old and they go, oh, who gives a shit, you know? <laughs> but that time is like really intense for people that are not so experienced in this lifetime and not so knowledgeable and prone to be really susceptible to emotional influences. And so what they were doing was any young, if your profile, and they build a profile on everyone, all users, and if you're identified as a young female and you you do anything that indicates just by looking at a video, looking at a post that has something to do with body image, they would actually start feeding you stuff on the side about people struggling and getting depressed by it and, and, and developing eating disorders. And Instagram had massively contributed to this epidemic of, of eating disorders with young girls in particular. They were directly responding. They were manipulating people to go down that rabbit hole just to keep them on there. And the promise that has been offered by the tech companies is if you keep looking, you'll find a solution to your problem. But all they're doing is feeding you more and more problems. So it is because of, you know, we're, we're not even very alert to how badly we're being influenced. But because we're, we're being hammered by all this stuff all the time, the level of insecurity and fear is skyrocketing. And it, it's massively contributing to, you know, the mental health crisis that pervades the developed world. It, it's responsible for a lot of things. And so this tendency towards, you know, being more fearful comes from actually living a really unbalanced life, being overly focused on things that are actually not very important or significant. From a spiritual perspective, 
the, the panacea is two things. The cultivation of this understanding that I am actually an eternal spiritual being. What I am going through right now will pass. This too shall pass. And I have to learn. I become resilient by learning to just batten the hatches and my mind's stuck in this thing and it's going to go on for a while and I just need to ride it out just by nature's arrangement, choice, uh, chains will, will come. Things don't last forever, and learning that is really important. The cultivation of this knowledge that I'm an eternal spiritual being and actually trying to be, connect with that more and more alleviates almost all forms of fear and provides a foundation for all solutions to the different problems. And the thing that brings that about more intensely than anything is this process of engaging in that which is spiritual or transcendental to become immersed in these spiritual sounds in this form of meditation. That's the short answer. It's a massive subject. Um, I, I, I have a lot of resources online. It's sort of my attempt to, um, again, pay a debt. And there is a, a series that I, I did. It's like six parts. It's called Weathering a Storm. And it actually contains within it lots of different things that a person can consider to help them to deal with, you know, the nature of life in the material world. It is filled with difficulty. It's complicated. There's all kinds of sadness there. Don't think because you experience it that no one else does. Everybody's experiencing it. It's the nature of this world. Stop trying to make it perfect. Learn how to deal with it. Learn what's more important, what I need to focus on that will take me through this, you know, these rough seas that sometimes are calm and sometimes are rough. Life's like that. This idea that life is perfect, it's a, for me it's epitomized in weddings in the Western world, but I, I guess everywhere. Weddings are just so, oh my God, you know, you've got all these older people around whose marriages are absolute crap, <laughs> you know, and then they see somebody getting married and then they just go into this, oh. <laughs> and they want to dress the girl up like a princess. It's just like, oh, my God, you're just making it all about them, the bride and the groom. If you're just going to be totally focused on each other, you're going to quickly realize the person I married is not perfect. They can actually be a real dick at times. <laughs> and now because I was expecting something more perfect, I get disillusioned. It's kind of like, hello? Why exactly are you disillusioned? Your job, if you're going to get into a long-term relationship, is find out 
who the hell you're hooking up with. You know, people, you know, the relationship thing is filled with deception. When people start getting together, the first thing they want to do is hide all of their bad qualities because they're afraid if that person sees it, then they won't like me anymore and they won't want to continue. So I really hide all the stuff, what I'm really like. And they're doing the same thing. And we're making promises that we're so wonderful and we're going to be fantastic and I love you so much. You know, do you love me also? You know, please tell me. I Wanting that confirmation. Just because somebody says they love you, it doesn't mean they do. They may be just all hot and excited. <laughs> it's not very deep. You know, we don't really... We don't learn how to relate heart to heart, how to embrace shortcomings, how to, you know, work together towards something better and, and, and understanding, well, we, we're both in need of help and assistance here. It's kind of like we go into these things with this massive fantasy and they lived happily ever after. You know, bullshit. <laughs> What did it take, six months, you know, a year before they're throwing things at each other and screaming and shouting? And then, of course, it's the makeup sex. Oh, that's so good. It doesn't change anything. It's just more of the same passionate behavior that's actually very destructive. So, you know, we're deeply conditioned by so many things. We're not practical. But having... Having clear goals in your life and accepting proper guidance and actually really trying to apply it to live by principles that act as amazing guardrails that keep you on the road so you don't go off down the cliff is really important. But we're lazy and social media and the media in general have all learned it's all about the clicks. They're going to promote headlines. They're going to do stuff that get the clicks. And so the more dramatic and horrible or whatever it is, the more clicks they're going to get. And why are they getting more clicks? Because they want more money. That's how they are able to position themselves to sell advertising. It's all just driven by getting the money. And it's really unfortunate <clears throat> But so, you know, we have these epidemics of fear and loneliness and all this stuff. Cultivation of this understanding of my eternal spiritual nature and engaging in activity that will make it so that becomes increasingly evident and will then cause me to radically change the direction of my life so I can make brilliantly good decisions that produce really good outcomes. I can live a wonderful life, and I can die an extraordinary death. This is like, this was a big goal, to be able to peacefully move from this body to be absorbed in complete transcendence, to be around somebody who, who does this. It's just like inspiring, even more inspiring than a birth. So I usually tell people, please try and attend as many births 
I mean actual births, and as many deaths as you can in your life. It will change your life. Either it's going to be a real mind blower, you know, or it's going to be just like inspiring. Either way, it's going to help you become incredibly grounded in your life, to live a life of great purpose, a life that will actually be very happy. And that's it. We're done. Okay? <laughs> this, this stuff, I, it's just, it's mind-blowing. Spiritual life and spiritual truth. And it's filled with hope and all kinds of wonderful things. I'll sing the Maha Mantra. You probably figured out it's one of my favorites. Hari Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari Hari, Hari Rama, Hari Rama Rama Rama, Hari Hari, Hari Krishna, Hari Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari Hari, Hari Rama. Hari Rama, Rama Rama, Hari Hari, Hari Krishna, Hari Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari Hari, Hari Rama, Hari Rama, Rama Rama, Hari Hari. Hari Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari 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 Rama, Hari Rama, Rama Rama, Hari Hari, Hari Krishna, Hari Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari 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 Rama. Hari Rama, Rama Rama, Hari Hari, Hari Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari Hari, Hari Rama, Hari Rama, Rama Rama, Hari Hari, Hari Krishna. Hari Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari Hari, Hari Rama, Hari Rama, Rama Rama, Hari Hari, Hari Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari Hari, Hari Rama, Hari Rama. Rama Rama, 
Hare Krishna, Hare Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, Rama Rama. Krishna Hari 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 Rama Hari Rama 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 Hari Hari Krishna Hari Krishna 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 Hari 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 Rama Hari Rama 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 Hare Hare Krishna Krishna Hare 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 Rama Hare Rama 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 Hare 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 Krishna Hare Krishna 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 Hare Hare Hari Rama, Hari Rama, Rama Rama, Hari Hari. Krishna Krishna, Hari Hari. Rama, Hari Rama, Rama Rama, Hari Hari. Krishna, Hari Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari 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 Rama, Hari Rama Rama Rama, Hari Hari. Hari Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari 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 Rama. Hari Rama, Rama Rama. Hari Krishna, Hari Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari Hari. Hari Rama, Hari Rama, Rama Rama, Hari Hari. Hari Krishna. Krishna Krishna Hari 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 Rama Hari Rama 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 Hari Krishna Hari Krishna 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 Hari 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 Rama Hari Rama Hari Krishna, Hari Krishna, Krishna Krishna, Hari Hari, Hari Rama, Hari Rama, Rama Rama, Hari Hari.
Hare Krishna, 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 Hare Hare, Hare Rama, Hare Rama, 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 Hare Hare. mantra that's used in our lineage a lot it is for everybody's spiritual protection and well-being so some of the people know it so a bunch of people will join in don't worry if you don't know it it's fine namaste not a shrink Hiranyakashi Purakshā Silatam Hanukolaye Hidoda Shrinka Paratoda Shrinka Yatoya Toya Mintatona Shrinka Bahina Shrinka Hidayin Shrinka Nashrinka Mandim Saranam Prabhadai Tabakana Kamala Jai Lord, Nashing Dave, Jai Lord, Nashing 